This is CliffCentral.com. Good day and welcome to Disrupt with Mpumin Tapo. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of the show. Um, today in the studio with me, I've got Mr. Rashad Shah. He's the Chief Executive Officer of SquidNet. He's also the Chief Strategy Officer for Dark Fiber Access? Africa. Africa, Dark Fiber Africa, pardon me. Um, and Dark Fiber Africa have been, I mean, the pioneers of open access fiber in South Africa have been around for quite some time. And our conversation today will be about the fourth industrial revolution and how it can accelerate um, smart manufacturing within Africa and really looking at how IoT, how connected access um, can really accelerate and enable um, digital transformation and ultimately disruption to take place within the African economy. Before we get started, just want to say thank you to our sponsors, T-Systems, for making the platform available to us and really giving us the opportunity to speak to all these uh, disruptive personalities or people that are representing disruptive organizations and welcome them onto the show. Rashad, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mbumi. And uh, welcome. It's good to, you know, you just down the road from us, um, actually, your offices, Dark Fiber Access. Talk to me. I mean, you guys really pioneered the era of open access fiber. Um, everybody today talks about, you know, wanting to be in a neighborhood that's got fiber. I was saying to you earlier, I mean, in my neighborhood, it's a bit of a problem. What have you seen, um, you know, this open access and access to high-speed internet? How have you seen that changing or shaping the communities that you guys are representing? Thanks, Upumi. So DFA started about uh, 10 years ago, and its focus was to build a single infrastructure that multiple service providers could use. And those service providers would enable whatever services that businesses and consumers would want and uh, its intention was to always uh, roll this out on an open access basis. Okay. And uh, that open access basis means primarily investing capital in a way that is the most efficient, whereby you invest in um, trenching up roads and putting down this infrastructure, which is quite a time-consuming and expensive part, but uh, in the hope that not many others will have to do the same or be needing to do the same in order to make these services available. Okay. In South Africa, uh, f- to a large extent, we've seen some of that uh, duplicated where multiple operators have rolled out infrastructure, sometimes down the same side of a street, and um, whereas that same capital could have been used in, in other parts. As a rule, DFA, we don't uh, duplicate infrastructure. So if somebody's down the street and we're able to get access to that infrastructure, we'll easily uh, lease from them, buy from them, and make it available to service providers. Of course, if the other party is willing to an extent. Yeah. So you are the chief strategy officer for the organization. Um, by and large, I mean, what, what does your strategy encapsulate? Because I imagine, I mean, you're capital-intensive infrastructure business largely. So when you talk about strategy for an organization like that. Just take me through that. So our strategy is informed largely by being in a position to service our customer base. And our customers are the internet service providers, the mobile operators, all the companies that actually deliver services to customers, whether they are businesses or consumers. So we're an enabler to those um, upstream providers, if I want to call them that. So our strategy is largely informed by what the needs of that customer base is and their evolving needs. So initially, when DFA started, we primarily provided dark fiber infrastructure. Okay. Hence the name dark fiber dark Africa. Dark fiber Africa. Okay. Um, but over the last few years, we've evolved what we provide into the market into what we call layer two services. Okay. So um, what's what's dark fiber? Let's start there. So dark fiber is. Optical fiber strands that has no light going through it. Okay. So when you light the fiber, when light goes through it, it means you're delivering a service on top of that fiber of I, some kind. I see. And so your model is that the service providers are the ones that would essentially light it up or provide the service on it. Initially, that was the uh, objective was to get service providers to light it up. Okay. But with that, it still has certain price points in the market when the service provider is lighting it up, going from layer one to layer two and other layers which eventually get to customers. So what we have recently done a couple of years ago is started delivering a layer two service. Okay. And that allows us to provide a much cheaper product to our service provider customers who in turn then can sell it to their customer base. Okay. So the idea of the layer two service is to 
bring down the price point of this fiber optic service. Okay, and just so that we understand it, this layer two service, what, what is that? It's again a um, electronic service that's okay. running on top of this fiber network. Okay, uh, with equipment on either side. Oh, okay. So, so it's it's quite technical in in in, in essence. To an extent. To an yes. extent. But yes. but the net effect is that it's able to reduce the cost for the consumer at the end of the day. It does. It does reduce the cost for businesses as well as for consumers. Because initially we again focused largely on businesses, uh, even before that on mobile operators, and then we moved into the business space, and now we're also in the consumer space. Okay. So by offering a service where we put in as much of the shared infrastructure um, that allows for multi-tenanting that enables a, a reduction in price points for okay. customers. Okay. And in terms of, I mean, the, this uh, connected world, the fiber world, is there significant growth happening? I think there's um, lots of areas that do not have fiber. Yes. This is not just residential, but even businesses to an extent. Okay. And um, so we're, we're driven largely by the customer demand that we see. And that is largely um, to connect businesses as well as uh, homes and complexes and estates. So we see lots of demand, and we see that demand carrying on for at least another 18 to 24 months, Okay, uh, in, which, which means that there will still be lots of build taking place for the next two years. Okay. And when you've reached now your build objectives, what happens then from a business point of view? Because I'm trying to really understand – you know, once you've established yourself, once you've established the infrastructure from a strategy point of view, then how do you take that into the next level from a business point of view? So there's always a lag between uh, uptake of service and, okay. and the infrastructure that's being rolled out. Yes. So, you know, while we are continuously rolling out infrastructure, um, there's demand from customers on the exact same places that we already have infrastructure so we can just provision additional circuits for them. But there's also areas where as we expand, we'll, we'll cover more uh, of the cities, we'll cover more of the suburbs, and that will allow us to sell more services on that uh, yes. part. But there's, you know, demand comes in, in multiple forms. The, the first form of it would be that um, a customer has access to nothing other than mobile, and so there's some fixed requirement, whether it's fiber or um, DSL or something else, some fixed line type requirement. Okay. So th- that demand we're able to service by building out new network. Yes. Where there is existing network, there is um, customers that are uh, wanting additional services, and that's you know because we deploy a very large amount of infrastructure in the ground, we can service you know any. Um, a very large amount of uh, the customer's requirement into the future. So as his bandwidth requirements change, as his demand for additional services and capacity increases, we're able to service that because of the type of infrastructure we rolled out and in its multi-tenanted way. The third type comes in the form of service provider A is servicing this customer, but actually service provider B has now secured that customer and has moved them over. So, that demand is, again, on the same footprint, but maybe a different offering uh, to the same customer. And that's really where the competition starts to, um, you know, uh, be, become visible, where service providers are now competing at a service level and a service layer, whether it's price points or types of services that they offer to the customer. That's really where the competition in that space helps to drive down the price of that service to the customer, whether it's a business or a home. I see. And having this shared infrastructure reaching all parts of uh, businesses across the country, we're actually an enabler of this competition. I see, I see. And I guess then that kind of leads us to your second role that you fulfill within the DFA um, organization, your CEO of Squidnet. Yes, Squidnet uh, is a uh, Internet of Things company. Okay. Its um, role is to build out a uh, national IoT network that's dedicated to only servicing devices and objects, as we call them. Okay. Squidnet is a uh, – we, we've partnered with a French company called Sigfox. Sigfox is the network standard that we're using. It's rolled out across 32 countries around the world. Okay. It's actually the largest dedicated IoT network in the world covering 589 million people, 2.3 million square kilometers um, across the world. Okay. In South Africa specifically, this technology, which is an ultra-narrow band, um, dedicated to servicing objects and machines and devices, 
currently covers about 61% of South Africa's population. So we started rolling out this network at the beginning of the year, okay. and we're up to about 61% population coverage today. Wow. So why do we need a separate network for devices and things? Is uh, I mean, if, if you really got the fiber and it's connected, isn't that good enough? Well, you need a wireless communications network, firstly, to okay. connect objects that are not going to be connected. And those objects that I talk about could be a simple tracking device that's in your car or your bike, or it could be a temperature sensor that's sitting on a wall somewhere. It could be a a water meter that's in the ground and and you're reporting on its readings. So that type of device or object cannot be connected to any physical cables, firstly, so it needs okay. to be wireless. Okay. The reason for dedicated IoT network that's different from a cellular network that's out there, yes. like a really advanced 3G, 4G or LTE type network, yes. um, the when when a network is is built for a specific purpose, and in this case, the purpose being servicing objects and devices, it's designed from the ground up in a way that services the requirements of that network, and those requirements are um, propped up by three pillars, if I want to call them that. The first pillar being it needs to be low cost. Right. Okay. Low cost. Many, 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 many devices. Exactly. Because yes. I need to connect hundreds of millions of devices. Yes. So it needs to be really, really cheap from two perspectives. First perspective is enablement of the device. So if I need to enable a water meter or if I need to enable a chair to report its usage, yes. that enablement cost needs to be very low. So for me to put a radio which is what uh, we would enable that device with a radio communications module, it's as low as below $2 today to enable the device. So it's really, really cheap versus… On your network or on the device? Uh, this is on the device. Okay. To enable that device. Yes. So there's a once-off cost to enable whatever that device is. And the second part of the cost is the fee to operate on the network. So, And that fee needs to be low enough that it allows hundreds of millions of devices to connect to that. So that fee, for example, in South Africa, we have a price point that we sell, again, on an open access basis to channel partners. That fee ranges from anywhere from about 7 rand to about 110 rand per annum for the device. So depending on your volume, it could cost you as low as 7 rand. That's really cheap. Yes. Right. So the first pillar being low cost, it's serviced by that. The second pillar is battery life. So the battery life of the device needs to at least last the same amount of time as what its purpose is. So if it's a water meter, you need it to last 15 years. Yes. So you need a battery that lasts 15 years. You need the communications mechanism of whatever you're building and communicating with this dedicated network to last 15 years. So by design, it's a low-power consuming network. So that's the second important pillar. Okay. And then the third being ultra-narrow band and long range, meaning that it must be able to reach vast areas, whether it's, you know, an agricultural field, whether it is uh, suburbs, whether it is, um, you know, in the basement of a home uh, where some of these devices might exist. Yes. It needs to be able to penetrate even the ground if uh, a meter is buried for that matter. Yes. In the mining application, it needs to be in a position to locate specific assets that need to be located. And those assets could be machinery, it could be human beings. Deep underground in certain cases. Exactly. Yeah. So the technology has been designed in a way that it's able to penetrate uh, these areas in a significant way and in a very long-range um, area as well. Okay. If we were to take the attributes that you've defined, the three pillars. And if I were to ask any person who consumes network services for connectivity, if they would like some of that, I think the answer would be absolutely yes. You know, So I guess the question is, why is that not translating into the connectivity of everything else um, that's not a device or an object? Well, I think the first important aspect of of the cost structure of any service that's offered, whether it's a cellular data service, an LTE service, or even a fiber service, yes. um, it's influenced largely by the investment that goes in in order to enable that service. 
So when you think of uh, mobile operators in South Africa, they've had to make significant amounts of investments in order to uh, deliver a service of that nature. Yes. And you must also understand is that these networks have evolved over um, the last couple of decades from purely voice servicing and design and build for voice servicing all the way through to what they service today. Okay. And that evolution means that it, it doesn't mean I must ignore that capital investment that has taken place. I need to find a mechanism to still recover from that, but also bring in new service offerings. So, Inherently, a cellular network that was designed from the beginning for servicing voice requirements with its specific feature sets yes. um, will will need some continuous involvement in order to service newer requirements. Yes. Here, where we're starting is we're starting at a point where it's a few decades since um, the early cellular networks were rolled out for a specific purpose and um, – with its specific price point. We're starting from a point that we learned from a lot of what has been done in Sigfox specifically in terms of the way their network and protocol is designed uh, takes a lot of learnings from how the cellular world has evolved Yes, and therefore from day one is able to offer the volume-based price points that you would only get when you know the network is full with hundreds of millions of objects, its its business model is designed in a way to service those objects, and hence that price point that you see yes. that is so attractive. And what about some of the capabilities? You know, to access deep underground things that are buried. I mean, having that available to people and businesses, I think, would really help us innovate in a very different way. You know, besides just connecting devices, but just having that type of access. Absolutely, and and I think that's really where IoT starts to um, bring some of its power and capabilities to businesses. It's to enable that innovation, to enable that thinking of what is that digital transformation journey that I need to undertake. And digital transformation, not necessarily how do I digitize specific processes, but how do I actually transform what I do, the way I do it, and possibly alter my business model to, you know, deliver a different set of value to my customer base. Yes. So that's really, you know, where IoT can be of significant assistance to to companies. But again, it's not just IoT on its own. It's not about just connecting those devices that allows me to do this um, value creation for my customer base. It's about how do I connect those devices? How do I examine my value chain? How do I, I re-engineer my business process if needed in order to service a need that my customer has and my customer's need that also itself continuously evolves. Yes. So when you think about digital transformation, it isn't a um, process that you start and you finish. It's actually a journey that a business needs to undertake in order to remain relevant to their customer base, Absolutely. but also um, service that requirement that he has, which changes on an ongoing basis and will continuously evolve and importantly to uh, beat their competition at doing whatever that service is in a better way. I mean, this radio station itself is a different mechanism of how do I deliver a service in a non-traditional way, but still, you know, compete with those that have invested in significant amounts of infrastructure to Uh, do the same. I really, really like what you're saying because... You know, typically when we talk about these topics, um, they can be quite uh, cursory, you know, just say IoT. And we all sit back and assume one day IoT will be everywhere. But you guys are at the forefront, in effect, of putting in place the systems and the infrastructure that make it a real, tangible reality. I mean, these things need to be connected. My assumption is that, well, they'll get connected somehow. But what you're saying here is that there's a lot of work that's going in over a significant amount of time to make sure that the reality is affordable, that it's highly accessible, highly accessible, highly available, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Was, with that being said, did, did that therefore needed to be a separate business from your traditional fiber business? Absolutely. I mean, these um, the business had to be completely separate from from the the DFA fiber business because they are servicing completely different objectives. You know, the fiber business is servicing a high speed. Uh, connectivity requirement in the market for service providers. This IoT business is servicing an ultra-narrow band, um, low-speed 
small data packet requirement of devices that need to connect onto the network. And I think just going back to your earlier point about the ease of it, you know, the devices will be connected. Well, one of the things that Sigfox is working on globally with some global partners, including one of their shareholders, which is Samsung, is to enable white goods to come out with out-of-the-box connectivity. White goods are items like your washing machine and tumble dryers and fridges and those things that are able to... When you buy that fridge, it already have this connectivity in. Yes. And the cost of it is negligible because it's built into the purchase price that you paid for Absolutely. that device. Small, you might even, it might be insignificant what you pay extra for it. Exactly. So, yes. so that kind of a device that is not just providing information that is useful to its customer, but it's providing contextual information that's useful to the manufacturer. He wants to know what kind of usage I'm getting out of this. He wants to know the different wear on the parts. He wants to know... Um, at what temperature levels different components of, of this device is at. Yes. And that will help him to improve his manufacturing process and to create better products uh, for, for that customer base. Absolutely. And, and let's talk a little bit about that because it's, it's a space that I believe will probably bring IoT more to the forefront from us consumer experience point of view. You know, that when things, white goods start being shipped, Connected out of the box. I see that that's where we'll really see the massive uptake. The current space is mainly in the industries, right? Is that where it's really, where you're seeing the uptake of IoT is really made from industrial manufacturing processes? We, we're seeing lots of demand from across multiple industries. And, okay. and yes, in the manufacturing space, see, manufacturing is quite, has evolved uh, significantly over the last couple of decades. And, you know, before this IoT buzz really started, they were already connected, um, had already connected lots of their um, production lines and, and machinery. But with with IoT becoming more prevalent, it's allowing them to control everything from the supply chain all the way through to the finished goods okay. and being able to monitor those processes in a much more effective way. So manufacturing... As, as one of those verticals where we're seeing lots of demand, but we're also seeing lots of demand from utilities and providers of, um, of, uh, of items that enable a smart city. Okay. So items that would allow for traffic lights to autonomously report their status as in yeah. out of sync, down, knock down, whatever the, the status of that is. Okay. Um, seeing items where you're getting uh, meters being able to provide their readings on a regular basis um, for for the billing for the purposes of billing, whether this is water or electricity or gas or any one of those utilities. Okay. But more than that is taking the data set from that and determining specific insights that could be relevant to that customer. So, for example, we have a partner that we're working with very closely, a local company that is manufactured a metering device for water that's also able to provide leak detection. So it will notify you that when it suspects that you have a leak yes. based on your usage profile. Okay. It, it, they also have a device that allows for that municipality to potentially control the flow of water past a certain usage volume for that day. And they could just switch it down to a trickle feed because you've exceeded your daily quota. Okay. And, you know, we, we joked about, um, um, load shedding for water for some time when electricity load shedding was taking place in South Africa. Yes. And, uh, but it's a reality now, right? I mean, the Western Cape province have a significant challenge in terms of they do not have enough supply to service the demand. Yes. So they actually have to find mechanisms to restrict the amount of usage. And there is no better way to restrict usage other than to use a device that does this autonomously without human intervention. Uh, I see. And and the other industries, healthcare, retail, advances so in, in that space? Yeah, I think all of them are in various stages of their journeys in terms of the adoption of IoT and the usage of, of connected devices, or in fact, the overall digital transformation journey, right? So you're seeing that in retail where devices that would typically – uh, be attached to a product to alert somebody that, okay, this thing is about to be stolen in a retail store. Yes. Um, to being able to provide a lot more advanced analytics around its movement, around how many times it's, it's been, uh, back and forth onto a shelf. Yes. And a lot more contextual data that a retailer would be able to find use for it. 
um, in another area that we're seeing lots of demand, which is related to retail to an extent, is the logistics space. And this is where, um, whether it is goods that need to maintain at a certain temperature level, being shipped to stores, and then uh, whether they're sent back because they're above those thresholds or below the thresholds, yes. you know, those issues are, are now starting to become uh, more impactful on logistics providers and the overall supply chain to retailers. And so we're seeing lots of demand from that. The security industry as well is um, is is um, evolving to the extent where there's lots of demand coming from tracking of high-value goods, not just motor vehicles, but actual goods that are being shipped around the country, whether it is a a television or a mobile phone, um, it's it's high value enough to have it tracked. And that is also another area where um, this technology is extremely useful in that you're able to now track these devices at a low price point okay. that you couldn't do before. Absolutely. And then let's talk maybe about an industry that might not seem as uh, sophisticated. Um uh, BI Intelligence Business Insiders Premium Research, um, I read an article that says that we'll see uh, the growth in the agricultural industry from 30 million to 75 million devices by 2020. So in the next three years, it's going to more than double the number of connected devices used in agriculture. Um, being that, you know, South Africa and the rest of the continent, we've got you know, big ag- agricultural concerns. Uh, concerns businesses or activity have you have you seen the growth in that space we have seen lots of demand in that space we're having lots of conversations with um agriculture uh, providers and service providers in that space that are trying to find mechanisms to deliver a specific value to the farmer or to the to the producer um to an extent and that, those things include monitoring of the soil monitoring of the yield and being able to collect those data sets that help that farmer produce a better yield next time around. Okay. Also assist in the reduction of the amount of uh, chemicals and fertilizers and all sorts of other product that goes into getting his produce out. So there's lots of that monitoring happening. And is that already. happening in our economy currently? That is, but mostly in uh, to prove the concept that okay. to see that it works. Okay, so it's early I, stages. I, I don't think it's in wide scale adoption yet, but it will get there very fast. I mean, as as you reference that report, yes. they're forecasting those numbers simply because the technology is already mature to the extent that you're getting far more accurate information than a human being could ever provide by doing those exact same activities. Okay. And your network then will, will, will be able to cater for those, um, you know, vertical needs as well, or is it a generic platform that you put in place? How does it work from that perspective? So it's, it's basically a radio network that can receive communication from any Sigfox enabled device. Okay. And that would mean, um, it's, it's a, a, a very generic in that it allows for any form of uh, communication from a Sigfox enabled device. Okay. And um, and that device could be applicable to any d- vertical. And because it's down to just a radio communications module that goes into whatever the device is, you could pretty much enable anything with this radio communications. I see. And and so now from a strategy point of view, how do you how are you determining where to go first? You mentioned you've got, you know, um 61% of the population I mean, we're talking about varied industries here, from farming to healthcare. Some of them are urban-based, some of them are rural. How are you going about determining where to, where to execute first? So in terms of the network rollout, we started, of course, in the urban areas. We started in the major metros, and we covered that uh, pretty rapidly. And we've started extending that coverage out to the extent where today we have 61% of the country's population covered with our network. And that's really still saying that we're only covering primary and secondary cities. Yes. We're covering major roads or highways. All the R roads and M roads and N roads are in the process of being covered. And by the end of uh, this year calendar, we should have about 85% of the population covered. Okay. This is what we call our wave one of our rollout. And um, wave two of that rollout, which also started similar time as wave one, really targets very specific customer requirements. So a customer, like an agricultural customer, is way off the beaten track and they need coverage. We'd put down a coverage model that allows them to be uh, fully covered, so the entire farm and and the 
uh, arable areas. Okay, and w- when would we see this being commonplace? So this 80 pe- 80% penetration, is that in the near? The near that will be by the end of this year. Okay. And what do you then do? Because that's the exciting part. You know, once you've got the ability to connect um, with the partners that you're working with, can you just maybe share with share with us some of the things that are being discussed, you know, some of the things um, that you see coming down the line? Because I think that's where it can become more tangible when you say IoT. What are we talking about? Yes, you know, yes. um, What are the things that we can start to see happening as these networks become commonplace and we see more and more use cases coming to the fore? So a lot of those use cases are driven uh, by some of our partners. So these partners are the system integrators and service providers that are actually servicing the end customer need. So yes. they're understanding the customer need. We're discussing what that need is, how can we service it. We have a solutions team that rapidly prototypes devices and product that could be of use to that partner to take to his customer. But there's also a large ecosystem of device makers in South Africa. Okay. So there's actually quite a, an established um, level of engineering capability where you have local companies making devices, everything from pool monitoring devices to the water management system that I mentioned from yes. one of the uh, partners that we're working very closely with, which is a water meter and a data logging device and a water management system that could easily do various functions for utilities. So that's uh, those use cases are, are basically the ones that will remove the need for this sometimes inaccurate reporting from water meters or gas meters or electricity meters. It's about how do we get more efficient on that spot on, on that area, right? So you remove the intervention that human beings usually. Um, Bring the inaccuracies, not intentionally, but you know that's just the nature of what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that's you know we we're seeing a lot of um, development happening in that space. We're seeing lots of development in the tracking space. We're seeing lots of development for consumers where you can monitor various personal goods, whether it is your kids, whether it is your bicycle, whether it is um, any item that that is relatively mobile. You could monitor that. So we're seeing lots of areas on that. We're seeing um, lots of buttons being developed, which have a varied amounts of use cases. All being developed locally. Uh, locally, exactly. There's probably close to 500 international solutions that we have access to okay. that have, um, you know, are filtering through the market. But equally, there's a, a large number of local devices going through that design and manufacture and certification process. And some of them have already gone through that process and are in live trials and live POCs, and some of them in commercial deployment today. Specifically in the security industry, there's already some commercial deployments yes. that we've enabled with some of our partners. Yes, yes. So you, you know, you're going to see um, initially a large focus on the industries where you are going to get large volumes of devices uh, being deployed to enable digital transformation. Okay. But in the consumer home, you're also seeing lots of these devices you know, being deployed and developed for consumer services, like the button that I spoke about. Yes. Similar to an Amazon Dash button yes. where you press the button, somebody ships you a um, five kilograms of washing, washing powder, powder whatever, is an example. Yeah. 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 So here you'd have retailers partnering with um, IT companies to or system integrators to actually deploy a service where you hit this button and your product gets shipped, shipped whatever that product is. Mostly consumables, but also high volume uh, goods Absolutely. as well will come yeah. through in that way. And would you agree with me if I say um, in the not-so-distant future, we're not going to use the term IoT anymore because it's going to be commonplace? Well, I, In the I, same way, like, I mean, we don't really talk about the Internet, right? We, we talk about the things that we happen to be doing. I mean, they, they happen to be powered by the Internet, but that's it's like I, a road or a highway, if, if I can put it exactly, that. and and that's it. I mean, the the focus will shift away from the actual technology of what it is, yes, to the purpose that it's servicing. So when you when you talk about this dash button, nobody talks about Wi-Fi that it's connected yes, to, or, or, and, or no, that it's an IoT thing, or it that just it's an is. IoT device. It just it just exists, and it's servicing a purpose. So you will definitely get that yeah. um, that move over to you know what the actual tangible yes. uh, result is. I guess why I want to shift to that is because my concern is that we tend to get so caught up, and I'm thinking about how we can move to be actually engaging the the customer need is that we we, we could tend to get so focused on trying to decipher what this term means 
when actually what should be more because the space that you play in is to provide the connectivity and make it happen. And that what we should, um, as business leaders in particular, be concerned with is how can we, having ability to connect things, transform our business differently? Do you yeah. get what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's really about thinking through that digital transformation journey that a business must get started with. And, you know, it's... it's um. It's actually a, a, a simple decision for a business because if you are not undertaking that journey, then just be prepared to either be diminished in value or to be replaced by a competitor who has started undertaking or is already in the process of his digital transformation journey yes. or um, yourself go out of business completely. So it's it's really about um, at what stage do I start thinking through this? Well, we've passed that point of questioning whether I should do it, whether I shouldn't do it. It's really about how quickly can I start transforming specifically how I deliver whatever I deliver to my customer. Yes. And do you, in your business, spend a lot of time thinking about your customers' customers? We, because you're kind of quite removed from it. But but actually, you know, if you look at um, some of the stuff that we've been publishing recently, we only focus on the customer's customer. Okay. We don't really talk about the network. I mean, that's like a has to just happen and yes. it just has to get be rolled out and that's really the language of uh, of of how we engage our customer base and our customer base of course have to engage industry and engage businesses so we're already on that language reference point which is what are those use cases yes and when did that that, that penny drop for you no it started from the beginning okay so we didn't go the other way first and then yeah. change we started from the beginning with that specific language and even in the traditional fiber business in the traditional the fiber business um we I mean, that was a significant shift that we'd had to make as a as a company yeah. from a pure infrastructure builder to a service provider so that was a different one. That yeah. was really uh, initially about how many kilometers of network we have versus where we are today, where we talk about what e-commerce capability do we enable, what uh, video capability do we enable for our customers to be able to more efficiently train their own employees. So we, we shifted our conversation significantly over the years. And even within that, it's not necessarily about providing the content yourselves, but making sure that your network is enabled to, to make that easy. Exactly. For your customers. Yeah. And not, not just easy, right? So high availability is critically important. Okay. And, you know, we boast some of the highest uptimes of our network across the continent. And that uptime and reliability and availability of the network um, is really, really critical to the functioning of a business because a business has become so reliant on his connectivity that he sometimes cannot even function without it. Mm. Like a point-of-sale system yeah. sometimes cannot work without this level of connectivity. Yes. And um, so we spend a lot of time, effort, money, energy, and people on ensuring that we deliver a very high-quality service with superior uptime. Okay. And, you know, at the level that connectivity is part and parcel of our lives today, it's, it's almost like you're running a utility. You know, it's as important as electricity, Water, arguably, you know, when people walk in, you know that whole joke, they ask you what's the Wi-Fi password before they even say hi, for example. Um, how do you see the market at the moment? Um, I know it's, it's a bit fragmented. There are some of the bigger players, the smaller players. Where do you see the space of providing universal connectivity going? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's uh, that's an interesting um, question because, you know, there's a, a role for private sector and there's a role for government to yes. play in universal connectivity. And while many private sector companies have focused on, on, on largely the metro areas or the areas where there is a foreseeable return of that investment, um, it's, it's, it's become, um, the responsibility of, uh, Joint initiatives of private and public to work on how you know on creating models and on delivering service that does service the broader community and yeah. does service the broader population of the country. So I, I think the you know the guys that have made um, uh, that have done a lot in that space has been the mobile operators because okay. they've uh, been able to provide a communication service where you know no universal service could have uh, achieved without what they've uh, the investments that they've made yes so so i think that was great progress but 
the customer's requirements have evolved, right? So he needs more than a voice service. He needed a data service at yes. some point. And now not just a data service, it needs a high-speed data service. And not just a high-speed data service, he needs a high-speed data service with superior uptime and availability. And that is not unique to a person living in a suburb. We all um, want it. Everybody wants it and yes. everybody needs it. And yes. it's also a form of empowering that individual with access to something that allows his own knowledge base to change and increase. Um, a few months ago, we released a internet access report um, that we worked with uh, a partner on. And um, that was basically a survey that looked at what is the internet penetration level across the country. And, you know, one of the findings was that, you know, the education level of individuals, their income level uh, of the individual and where they live, all three of those things play important roles in what the penetration level of that group is. And, and for example, you know, if somebody has, and we surveyed the adult population primarily. Okay. And, and one of the results was that if somebody, an adult who, or that group that had, um, below a grade seven, uh, education level, their internet penetration in that group, that subset of group was in the twenties. Right. Okay. Versus somebody with matric and above, they were already above eighty percent penetration level. Wow. So it it has that impact in terms of you know what is that um, uh, need for it. It also has a self fulfilling loop uh, that's built in because of course if I've got access to this mechanism, I might be able to do more from an education perspective Absolutely. versus somebody who has no access to it. So so that that's you know that was an important finding, and and why that's relevant is because when you talk about universal access, there is still a um, divide between what the urban areas have and what the rural areas have. And the yes. penetration levels are, you know, glaring in, yeah. in terms of what that internet penetration levels are. Are, so, are you able, are you able to tailor your offerings perhaps to that, the, the price points, you know, because obviously I, w- I would guess, you know, in the urban areas, there's going to be a, a bigger demand on, on your infrastructure, but you know, in, in, Pursuing this objective, is there a way to tailor? I mean, are you doing that already perhaps where you can kind of customize your products or your offerings or your infrastructure to cater um, differently in that space? So with a fiber service, it's um, pretty difficult to, you know, use different input costs in in an urban area versus rural area because, in fact, it'll cost you more in the rural area because you have fewer people that you're picking up versus in the urban area. The, the cost to rollout is is pretty much the same, if not higher, if you as you move out, because the cost to get one person versus um, you know ten people in in an urban area versus a rural area, it's it's significantly different, right? Okay. So that's the the fixed infrastructure cost side of things. But fiber is not the only communications technology that could be used to deliver high speed connectivity to to people outside of the urban areas. I mean, okay. There are other wireless technologies that um, actually to an extent have been playing a role and, and I suppose that could be extended even further um, in terms of being able to access uh, people that are not living in the big cities or even in the secondary cities. Yes. So it's and, and I mean if you look at even uh, some of the European markets uh, and how uh, connectivity has evolved there, and some of them have been, you know, had access to fiber to the home for 20 years yes. uh, to an extent. Yes. But there's still rural areas that have no access to high-speed connectivity. Even in those economies, even in those economies, it's it's you know one of the things are the input costs related to that. But there, I suppose, you have to seek out new models uh, of delivering this kind of high-speed service to those individuals, and that would be possibly partnerships with government, possibly using some of the universal uh, service funds to jointly invest with government to probably deliver a subsidized service to an extent to those communities. Because not only do they not have access to it, their income levels are significantly different. So not access and not able to afford even the regular access is is still going to be a challenge. So you need models that can... um, you know, seek out ways of uh, co-investment models with government to deliver services there, but also then uh, a subsidized mechanism to allow that individual to access the service. Okay. 
Um, I I recently came across um, some videos, um, YouTube, um, not YouTube, pardon me, Google and Facebook, and these uh, drones and balloons that they're flying in into into the sky, into space, where they're going to be beaming internet services potentially for free um, in some of the developing areas across the world. And I found that fascinating because the question I wanted to ask you was about, you know, where do you see disruption coming into your space? You know, um, because fundamentally it's not about fiber, it's about high speed, high available, good quality connectivity, right? Yes. Or internet access, for, for lack of a better word. Um, are you familiar with these two projects that I'm talking about? Yes, I am. And, and how do you guys see that? Because that's, that's kind of falling from the sky almost, you know, as, as a disruptive force, if I can put it that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, even those projects, um, I call them projects now because they're not really yes. uh, commercially um, deployed. Yes. They have a very, very specific business model. So, and if you just take the Google one um, as an example, so Google generates a large amount of its revenue from advertising. Yes. Which actually means that the more people that are accessing my content or accessing my web pages or my search the results, the more money I make. Yes. So they've definitely found a model that says, how do I actually subsidize the connectivity to the extent that if I can get another 10 million or 100 million more people connected to um, a web page of some kind, I will have a, a direct uh, result in terms of income from having more people accessing adverts. Yes. So, so that's a, you know, a, a pretty interesting commercial model. And, yes. and it's, and it's those initiatives though that are able to push, um, the needle of, of disruption in terms of how do I do something, uh, in a completely different way. Yes. Like, you know, like the Ubers have done, like the, um, the, the big hotel group without, uh, any hotel rooms, mm. uh, Airbnb, how they've done it is, is by coming up with a disruptive business model to service a need and without some of, of those assets. In, in Google's case, they're looking at it from the perspective of saying, how do I get more people connected? I'll have a revenue model to service that, which means I may not need to charge for the service. Yes. I mean, th- those will, will work. And again, you have varied levels of connectivity, right? So if you were to put that down in a middle of a city, I'm not sure what kind of um, uh, uptake you'd get on it in you know immediately because you have people that have access to ADSL, they have access to LTE, they have access to fiber. So there's multiple technologies already available, mm. and you'll see in any most of those deployments they were actually targeting areas that had almost no connectivity because yes. they need to get more people connected to the internet. Yes, it doesn't help them you know, giving a fourth connection medium to somebody who's already got three at his disposal. But could it not disrupt your business? I'm, and I'm, I'm literally just asking the question, maybe not in the next five years, but I'm talking now in terms of once that lands, once it becomes available, once they mature it and they're able to do it at reduced costs. And if they want to further that model, I'm thinking of myself as a consumer, if they can give me high-speed internet for free, only so that I surf their pages, which I do anyway, then why would I want to pay the costs? Uh, absolutely. Do you get what I'm saying? So it's it's really just... I guess I'm trying to explore disruption in your space because one would see, you know, the mobile uh, players and you guys as being quite protected because it's capital intensive. You know, (laughs) to get into that business, you need to have big capital outlays. Um, But all of a sudden, we're seeing drones flying in from Google and Facebook that could potentially disrupt the space. I mean, do you guys concern yourselves with that much? Yeah, I mean, I think disruption is is a reality for any business. And and the way we look at disruption and – you know, to our business model, to our operating model yes. on the fiber business and then, of course, on the IoT side yeah. is that that disruption has to come from ourselves. We have to continuously seek out ways to disrupt our own business model in order to remain relevant to customers. Yes. And we've done that twice in the in the history of DFA. Okay. Talk me through that. Quickly. So the first disruption – Initially, we, we focused on infrastructure uh, connectivity, where we only provided um, dark fiber strands to yes, customers. Yes, you alluded to that, yes. Yeah, and then we we focused largely on connecting data centers and mobile towers and, and those kinds of things. Okay. The first level of disruption where we disrupted ourselves is we, we took that and we extended it out into the business connectivity space. So we actually opened up a a different part of the market that we were not servicing in our previous model. And we created a product set that was cheaper than what we were offering in the first round of of products. 
um, to allow us to get to that enterprise customer base to an extent. Okay. The second disruption was we then took that infrastructure level and said, let's take that one fiber strand and split it further down by providing multiple managed services across that same fiber strand. And that's when we offered the layer two services. But we weren't doing something new there. Um, there were lots of providers already in the market offering layer two services. Okay. But we weren't doing it. So it was very easy for any one of those to buy our infrastructure and offer that to our customer base. On your infrastructure. As, as a disruption layer. Yeah. So, so we undertook a journey to, um, you know, disrupt our own model from a pure dark fiber provider into a managed services provider. And we'll continuously seek out ways of how we would, um, enable ourselves to, to try and, um, be ahead in terms of what that capability is. But when you talk about the um, Luna project from Google or you talk about when you, when any of the other ones where they uh, deploy low-orbit um, satellites, yes. um, that one's a, a pretty tough one to think about how do you counter it. Yes. So, you know, you've got to rely on your overall customer experience yes. because, you know, like your example you gave, you said, well, I might choose the free service because I'm anyway browsing this page versus yes. the one that I'm paying for. Yes. What's going to distinguish me as a company is that I must ensure that the customer experience I provide to you must be so significant that you must be willing to pay me for it Okay. versus the free one. Because the free one, and and like you see in in public Wi-Fi hotspots, there is a free Wi-Fi version, which allows you a certain amount of access, and then there's a paid-for version. Yes. So depending on the experience you get on either one of those two, you are going to take the one that's more suited to you. So we, we're, we're investing heavily on evolving our customer experience capability. And I think that's another area where we think we'll be able to differentiate ourselves is through that customer experience. And that will attract a premium. Yeah. So fundamentally, like we discussed a bit earlier, focusing on your customer's customer is absolutely crucial. I mean, I think if, if I were to give you any other scenario, we could, we'll probably tackle the subject. But at the end of the day, it's going to come back to, well, I just need to understand my customers and what they're actually looking for. Because the fact that it's free might not be enough of a reason for them to consume that particular product or service. Exactly. Awesome. So talk to me now back to SquidNet. Um, the future for the organization. Um, do you see yourselves becoming more, um, we spoke about white goods and we kind of didn't get into more in-depth discussion on that. Is that an area that you see yourselves growing into more significantly? You know, as Squidnet, our uh, our role is to be an enabler, right? So enabler of the device through to the application layer. And that means we provide the connectivity between that. Okay. And there, the role that we're playing is initially is, of course, the network rollout, but also to invigorate that ecosystem of device makers. Okay. So we have uh, a couple of programs that uh, will start uh, later this year. One is called a maker's tour where we will be engaging with uh, a number of universities, engineering faculties, giving them access to our network, um, giving them development kits to go and build stuff, okay. uh, whatever that stuff is. Yes. So we're starting that uh, in about two months from now. So we'll be working with uh, a bunch of people around how do they um, innovate and and create whatever that product is. Because we don't know what those products are going to be that's going to be the next killer device application. Yes. But we don't know what that is. Yes. So the best way for us to enable that is to provide free access to our network to the developer community, provide them with development kits and say, right, go ahead and do it. In fact, we already started providing free access to developers uh, about six months ago on our network. So if anybody wants, they go onto our website, they um, fill in their details, tell us a little bit about their project, and uh, we give them access to the network so they can build whatever that is that they want to build, whatever their passion um, is. And, that and would that service. give them access to the Squid network, to the services on that network, and how it's able to speak yeah. to devices? Yeah, it gives that? them access to the network uh, at no charge. It also allows them to build and test on our network. Um, we open up the ecosystem to them where they can buy different components to build their own product or take existing product and, and make it better. So so we, we do that. Um and that's that's an area where we see an, a continuous invigoration of an ecosystem must happen. Yes. So that happens, and we're starting at the universities because we think that there's lots of capability 
um, in our engineering faculties across the country in every single one of our universities. Okay. And uh, we want to be able to allow them to be creative in in creating whatever that job is for themselves when they come out of university because there aren't ready-made jobs waiting for every graduate that comes out of university. Yes. So they must be able to um, be in a position to control their own future. And, and, and who knows, we might get, you know, a hundred, maybe a thousand different devices that get um, created every single year coming out of universities. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic idea because if you look at um, what keeps – I guess uh, people in, in academic environments, it's just access. And the more access we provide, I think we'll see the acceleration of products or new innovations coming through the ecosystem. Perfect. So now tell me about yourself. Um, how did you get into the space? I know um, from your profile, you studied at the University of Cape Town, you have an MBA. Um, but how did you find yourself in this space where you now talk about digital transformation? So I think to a large extent, what influenced um you know, the role that I, I fulfill now is I spent uh, some years at a American company called Cisco. Okay. Uh, I worked in a management consulting division that really worked with um, large telcos around the world and uh, helped those telecommunications companies to come up with new ways of uh, um, building products, help those companies to to look at Innovation help those companies to also look at new revenue streams. Okay. So a big chunk of uh, what I do has been influenced by having worked in, uh, you know, across across the world, having worked in South America, in the Middle East, in Turkey, in Russia, in Saudi Arabia, um, and and working with those large teleco telco providers who um, themselves sometimes were the incumbent provider and in a very comfortable position. Yes. And in some cases, we worked with uh, companies that were in a challenging position, as in you know the <clears throat> second or third operator who was trying to differentiate themselves. And uh, we worked in helping those companies to come up with new ways of doing things, come up with new products, new services, and sometimes just improving what they were doing in order to be more efficient. Okay. So it was largely a um, consultative role where we would work with the executive teams and boards of those companies and help them think about uh, their business from a long-term perspective. You know, where are some of those shifts going to come from? How do they cater for those shifts? How do they do long-range planning? Uh, we did loads of scenario planning exercises with many, many telcos around the world okay. um, to help them think about the 5, 10, and 15-year pictures for themselves. And uh, those, those to an extent, influenced um, even the way I uh, view technology and how I see those transitions coming. And, um, you know, a lot of those learnings are, are back into the businesses that uh, I'm involved in today. Fantastic. And uh, the future for you personally? Well, it's to really uh, focus largely on, on building a platform and capability for IoT to really become uh, prevalent across the continent. So I'm going to be working very hard at, uh, at of course, getting Squidnet off the ground and making sure it's uh, it's able to service the needs of its channel partners and, uh, and in turn its customers, yes. but also look at where are the developing areas that we could use this technology because today we're seeing demand you know mostly in south africa because that's where we're operating this business but yes. already we're seeing uh, interesting demand coming from across the continent for this network for this technology for this capability and as you know africa to an extent um you know the penetration levels just on not just on internet but on digital transformation initiatives is very very low yes and um so we think we could be an enabler across the continent um you know in the coming years fantastic and now let's let's take a lead from that because you're speaking about the continent um what vision would you offer for where you see south africa and africa going um, in this digital age you know, we, we've had the opportunity to, uh, leapfrog specific technologies, um, across the continent. So 
where you would have North America going through very, very specific transitions uh, from just on internet connectivity for that matter. Yes. Um, in, 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 to some extent, we've managed to shift some of those. We, we never had, uh, some of that across the continent where you would have, you know, this traditional dial-up type connectivity. Some of those countries just skipped that completely. They yes. just had no connectivity and the next day they had 3G, yeah. you know, yeah. or 2G, which evolved to 3G services. So, so I think on, if you think about the digital transformation journey, we could learn to an extent from a lot of what has happened in some of the developed worlds or what's happened in Western Europe in terms of digital transformation of manufacturing and agriculture and all of those businesses. And when we try to modify and adapt those for um, some of the businesses across the continent, we could easily um, leapfrog some of the processes that they've gone through in order to get to where they are. And we can go straight to that point. Yes. And I think that's really, um, you know, something that the, the continent and many countries are starting to embrace. But it's it's more about how do I, you know, involve not just government. How do I involve uh, stakeholders in the private sector? How do I involve the citizen in this transformation? How do I um, actually get a collaborative space going where innovation is uh, encouraged, where entrepreneurship is I want to say more than just encouraged, more than just a speech it's once a year. It must become part and parcel of exactly of you know of the DNA of uh, of the African yes um, citizen. So that's I, I think that's really what's going to allow us to I think grow as a continent, but also to um, you know become a uh, force to reckon with from an innovation and technology perspective in the world. And um, I think the capability is, is absolutely there. I personally worked across the continent for about 10 years, okay. um, you know, before, before my role at Cisco. And, you know, I, I probably traveled to 48 of the countries um, and engaged with various uh, businesses and telco operators and companies and understanding the challenges that uh, the continent faces. It's still is a huge opportunity. Absolutely. And and with your experience um, and the work that you do now, and, and I guess the, the strategic space that you find yourself in in terms of defining the future of your organization, what would you offer as a definition of disruption for yourself? How would you define it? So I, I think I would define it as a... Um, I mean, an organization must look at disruption as a potential threat to their existing business model, whatever that business model is. Okay. And they, as a company, would understand that business model the best because it's internal to them. Yes. So they would understand its weaknesses and its strengths, and they would need to engage that business model to see how they themselves could disrupt it before somebody else disrupts it for you. Okay. So I think disruption in and not just in the technology space and actually in any business uh, disruption could come in from small agile companies it could come from very large uh, corporations like a google yes. so it could come from from anywhere so it's important to spend sufficient amount of time talking about it discussing it thinking it through thinking through the impact of uh, a disruption could have in a specific business model and um, finally, and I, I have to ask this one, the role that you see people playing in, in all of this, how do you see that? I mean, of course, you know, people are central to any form of uh, innovation and disruption because the, the thinking person is actually the person that's going to uh, provide the most value to his organization and and also the most value to um finding better ways of servicing whatever customer product that they deliver or, or enable today. Yes. And, you know, I, I know there's a large focus on machine learning and artificial intelligence at the moment, and those things also have a significant role to play. But again, it's, you know, it's finding that balance between how do I take contextual data, um, apply some human <laughs> thinking to it in order to enable a machine to process this large volume and, and provide us with some real insights that 
we didn't know because the human brain wasn't possible or a single person wasn't able to just process and consume all of that data in order to, to provide you that insight. Yeah. So, so what, I, what I'm actually saying there is that I think we must find that um, balance between allowing um, and enabling human beings to interact um, in a much more comfortable space with where machine learning is actually driving us as a world, driving organizations, driving companies, and uh, you know, and, and looking at where do we actually take advantage of the AI side of artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence, as I prefer to call it. Uh, heard that recently at a conference where they, instead of referring to AI as artificial, they're saying it's augmented. Mm. And reason augmented is because it's more than just applying a set of rules to it. It's it's self learning and self fulfilling. Yes. yes. So I think you know that balance of of uh, informing what the world will evolve to, informing what that insight from the set of data will will reveal about my customer behavior, you know, that's uh, that's uh, an interesting balance that we'd need to find between human beings and machines. I think that's a wonderful note on which to end our show today. Rashad Shah, thank you so much um, for joining us on the show today. Thank you to everybody who's joined us as well for this conversation on, on IoT and how it's becoming a very practical reality in South Africa. Um, the infrastructure is getting into place. There seems to be a thriving ecosystem that's developing around, around the space, which, which is enabling new businesses and new opportunities. So it's really fascinating for me to, to learn that, you know, it's not just things that we talk about here on the show or at conferences, but that there's real work on the ground that's happening to develop uh, that area. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, T-Systems, once again, for making the platform available. And we look forward to sharing another insightful conversation with a guest uh, here on Disrupt with Mpumintapo. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. This is CliffCentral.com.